Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Barb Higgins here. Beginning episode 44 of A Thousand Tiny Steps. So three episodes into season five and talking about my first five or six years back to Concord after living in Boston for eight years. As always, when you start thinking about something that's happened to you, or at least this is true for me, you start thinking about things or writing a paper on something or creating an idea, and you go right back to where you were in your life at that time. And so going back to all those early years, before any of my current realities existed, you know, it brings up a lot for me. I'll just start by saying that. It just brings up a lot. The biggest thing, so before I record a new podcast, what I do is I watch the one I just recorded. Typically the unedited one because I, I don't always have the edited one at hand, but it helps me keep the flow going. I don't want to repeat things from episode to episode, nor do I want to jump around and not make sense. I just finished listening to episode 43, like moments ago, and it was all about AA and alcohol and my relationship with it. And so many things come back, you know, and then it's leading up to where I'm going in this episode. Always in my life, I have maintained connections with people all through the years and oftentimes people that I've had relationships with. This was something that Roy and I had had and continue to have in common. He maintains contact with (laughs) all of his exes as well. I don't know if that's a good thing or not. It comes to mind when I'm processing all this information. And in looking for, you know, the thousand tiny steps back to Molly and all that was set in motion around that, I take and look at everything I did 33 years ago and analyze it and compare it to now. And the big theme I'm coming up with here is that I really repeat behaviors. And it's not necessarily the identical behavior, but it is the identical set of actions in a situation. And this will make sense in a minute. A very, very key piece of anyone who is living in a trauma-filled life, functioning on a trauma brain, is to be very, very in the moment, which you think, okay, that's because you're in the moment, mindfulness, except it isn't that way at all. Everything that's bothering you or is traumatic or troubling is in a box, but it's, it's there. And it's not like you've moved on from it and it's disappeared. I go back to the undertoed in that wonderful book, The World According to Garp, a young character, when he had a nervous tummy, would refer to the undertoad. And, and the undertoad was the undertow in the ocean. And what makes the undertoad so scary is you know what's there, but you can't see it. I would have to liken a lot of what goes on in my, in my emotions and in my you know, thought processes and, and such as the undertoad. So I have all these things I've done again and again, and new lives I've created for myself when I jump out of the old one. I'm a serial geographical curer. (laughs) I move from one thing to the next. So I digress and I'm probably not making any sense right now. As I begin this recording, it's June 26th and I have just finished track camp. So I had every intention of getting this episode recorded a day earlier so that my editor would have more time to edit. You know, track camp is go, 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 go. I think I sleep five hours a night. I get a lot done is the best week. It, It really is a fun week. This was year 22. 
I started it in 2001. You know, I started that camp, Barb's track camp. Gracie was eight weeks old. And I remember pulling out of my driveway in tears because I thought I shouldn't be leaving my eight-week-old with my mom. Of course, my mom brought her up to the field and I, I could nurse her and I pumped milk and Gracie was fine. And once I was at camp, I was fine. But it's just you know, it brings me back. And so then when I'm at camp, I get brought back because a lot of my staff comes back and my adult staff, some were campers themselves. And, you know, now they're in their thirties and, you know, it's one of those life coming around again. There's a 1970s folk song coming around again. Okay. Anyway, this is episode 44 where I left off in episode 43 upon my return to Concord was my deep involvement in Alcoholics Anonymous and living a sober lifestyle. This was a huge change for me. I was also went from living in the city to living in the country, then to living in Concord in a couple of different apartments. I had this long-term relationship. I just ended it and began a new one. And then that ended and then I began another. And so I'm going to pick up in that year, 1992 into 93, because it was at that time, it was in the spring of 92 that I was so sick and went into the hospital. I talked about that at the end of my last episode. And it was at that time that Graham and I started to date. We had been really good friends since I had come back to Concord and we'd hiked together and gone running together and everything. And while we had sort of chemistry and energy, we really had committed to just staying friends. And then I got sick, really sick. And I think it was one of those, you know, traumatic experiences where, oh no, oh no, oh no, I love you. I love you too. And we began, we began a relationship. I would have to say that was <laughs> such a fun year. If there's somebody that knows how to have fun, it's Graham. And so we, we would just, everything was funny and everything made us laugh. We had all these little sayings and it was just two single people unencumbered by really any big responsibilities. And so all of 1992, I was sick in February. And so then all of that summer and then fall into winter and into the next spring into 93, things were really fine. Although I always think with me, things are always bubbling underneath. And I know that I had reservations about my relationship with Graham really being the right thing or working. And obviously it wasn't because he has a wonderful wife and a family now. And I have Gracie and Molly and Gordy and Jack and Kenny and everything else. So I guess we went the way we were supposed to go. But that was a really fun year for me. What was good about it relating to the alcohol piece is that Jim drank. He didn't drink heavily. He could go, he could not drink forever. But if he wanted a beer, he had a beer. And it was never an issue for us. When we went out for dinner or did things, or, you know, he has a house in the mountains. And when we would go up there, it was no big deal. It didn't phase me. I never, ever really craved beer at all. It was not a big deal. 92 into 93 went along just fine. I, I was settling into teaching. I was settling into coaching. I was coaching cross-country and indoor track. My teams every year were bigger and bigger, learning on the fly. I was a special ed teacher at Walker School, a wonderful neighborhood school. That school should still be here. It's just sad that it's gone. I had sort of settled into this routine in this life. But, you know, I was 29 turning 30, and I started to have misgivings and doubts, and I wasn't sure what to do. And so I took a job. For the summer, I went away. I took a job for the summer at Greenacre Baha'i School, which is in Elliott, Maine, which is right next to Kittery and Berwick, South Berwick. It's right there. It's just over the border. I thought, okay, I'll go I'll spend eight weeks at the Baha'i School. I'll immerse myself in the faith. I'll find truth and answers there. And it will give me some space from Graham. And because I really did feel that likely that relationship would come to an end and not being one to end relationships well, quite honestly, you know, it was, it was a way for me to sort of escape. And I remember he came there to see me off and then he went home and it was really sad for him. He was really sad. And I was just utterly relieved. When I say things come around again and again, you know, Chaz and I broke up and it was just sort of like, it wasn't ever like, okay, we're over, we're over. We just sort of whittled away. And then he started seeing someone else 
And then I started seeing Graham, but there was never any sort of end to it. And, you know, ultimately I did the same thing to Graham. So I turned 30, turning 30, everyone, you know, oh no, oh no, I'm turning 30. I went off to Greenacre and I would spend my 30th birthday there. And, And my hope was that, you know, I could be immersed in the faith and do the right thing. And I was immersed in the faith. All right. I was teaching children's classes. I worked with two amazing, amazing women to hear a cook and Aaron, whose last name will, will escape me now. Here at Aaron and I were awesome together. We had so much fun teaching the children's classes. So Greenacre Baha'i School is a, is a beautiful inn that was built in the 1800s. And my first year at Greenacre, it had not yet been restored. It was being worked on. And what's important here is the restoration carpenter assigned to the job at the inn was a guy named Eric, Eric Nelson. And <laughs> Eric would become my first husband. So I show up on June 29th. We're at June 26 right now. And I go to Greenacre and I set up my little dorm room and I'm all set and I'm going to live and I'm going to have this safe little sort of secluded reality for the summer. Remove myself from all the details of my life. Remove myself from my teaching job. Remove myself from the runners. Just, just remove myself. I did that and the summer started and Eric and I connected right away. We were both older than everyone else. You know, I was a children's class teacher, I was, but I was, you know, 29 turning 30. He was 44, so he was a bit older. There were other staff there. He was, in hindsight, I see a lot of narcissistic traits in him, very big sense of self. I'm educating myself now, trying to find out why I end up in the situations I do, both relationships and friendships. And I do have a tendency, I'm drawn to a certain kind of person, which I've talked about before. So June 29th, I go to Greenacre in Elliott, Maine, and I meet Eric. And it doesn't take me long before I really begin to have feelings for Eric, or so I thought at the time. It was very much done on, you know, Baha'i faith, Baha'i faith, Baha'i faith. We would go for drives and we would talk and we would, you know, chat and we shared our lives and all all sorts of things. And I don't remember a lot of it now because I think I've just put it out of my mind so much. But that whole summer, I really just slowly extricated myself from the entire life I had been building up since I came back to Concord. I didn't communicate with friends anymore. I, I was supposed to go to two different weddings that summer of good friends of mine. And I didn't go because I was at Greenacre and I didn't want to leave and I didn't want to leave Eric. I was only going to stay at Greenacre for a month, actually, when I first went. I think I was going to stay six weeks. And I had all sorts of things planned in Concord for when I came back and I just canned them. I just bagged them all. The only thing I didn't get rid of was coaching and teaching. Obviously, those were my paid jobs, but I got rid of everything. And people that have these tendencies that, that tend to function in, in a very self-centered, egomaniacal sort of narcissist way, are very good at and methodical at encouraging their new partners to stop doing all the things that they do. And so you don't see it much at first, but I, looking back on it now, I just, I just, it's so eye-opening to me, even as I tell the story. So we spent the, you know, 11 weeks getting to know one another, <laughs> 11 weeks. And on September 11th, 1993, shortly after my 30th birthday, I got married at Greenacre to Eric. And it was a beautiful wedding. My sister-in-law, Kathy, saying, give yourself to love. My whole family was there. Chandler Pellock read a prayer. I would run into Chan Chan. I always called him Chan Chan years later at CrossFit. And, you know, I had a picture of him at my wedding and I brought it in to embarrass him. But I had this wedding and I you know, got married 11 weeks after meeting Eric. And, you know, hindsight, everybody thinks, okay, that was probably quite. In the Baha'i faith, you have to sort of have the blessing of your families. If, if you have a family member, a parent rather, that is utterly against the marriage, you're not supposed to get married. Family unity is important in the religion and you have to, if there are logical reasons for it not to happen, then those are the steps to take. And that can be hard in our current culture because we don't have a healthy culture. 
Not all parents are Baha'i parents who would be saying yes or no for healthy, logical reasons. We went through all of those steps. We drove to Happy Valley to see my biological father, Tom, and we went to Concord and we drove to Pennsylvania. And he was from the Northwest section of Pennsylvania in the Allegheny Forest, Meadville, in the middle of nowhere. So we went there and we did it and I got married. I wore this flowered dress that my good friend, Kristen Wentworth, had given me. She had outgrown it. It was a flowered dress from my friend, Kristen Wentworth, fit me to a T. I wore a big bow in my hair. Oh God. I can't, I can't imagine the, the 80s and 90s fashions were something else. And so I remember we drove from Greenacre and we, we drove to York and we spent a few days in York and then we spent a few days in North Conway in the mountains, Jackson. And we had a wonderful time. It was a very short honeymoon, just a few days. I had to get back, you know, it was school had started. So I had school and he had, you know, was working and everything. And so we just jumped right into it. And I remember sitting in the car, driving from the wedding to the honeymoon and looking at my hand with the wedding ring on it and getting this sort of lurch of like, oh no, what have I done? That little premonition would end, would end up being accurate and true, but not after a lot of positives and negatives and growth and trying, really trying to make it work and do the right thing. The fall of 93, I come home and the phone call to Graham, where I said to him, I'm breaking up with you and I'm getting married was horrifying. What a terrible way to like, what a terrible way to end a relationship. And in the process of holding others accountable for what they've done to me, I am first holding myself accountable for the choices and mistakes that I made. I treated Graham horribly here. He was a good person. And, and I will say he did nothing in our relationship for me to call him out on. He was, he was a wonderful boyfriend, as was Chas. Really, the both of them were, were awesome. I just wasn't in the place, you know, to stay in the relationships, I guess. I don't know. I really don't remember so much of those times. I know that it, I didn't have a therapist yet. I had not met, yet met Judy. Once I was married to Eric, I did, I think. Or it was right around that time that I started going to therapy with Judy because I knew that I needed to really address and fix, you know, my frenetic sort of dating and, hey, I have a good relationship now. Okay, it's not going to work. I got to find a new one. And, you know, it's just when I think back to, once again, I show this book, The Body Keeps the Score. I realized how much of my frenetic behavior and my panic and my fear and living in a state of fear go back to my trauma-based childhood. So Eric and I get married and we come home and we move into my teeny tiny two-bedroom apartment. And, you know, I have everything in there. I, you know, it's teeny. So we were going through some things. So let me, I won't get so specific. So we begin our marriage and, you know, we didn't sleep together before we got married. So we had all of that to navigate. And the fall of 93, we're just beginning to know one another. And I'm alarmed, alarmed by a lot of what I'm seeing now that we're living together. He really wanted me to quit coaching and so that I could come home after school and cook dinner and do the laundry and have everything ready for him. You know, I have a long day. You should be doing all this. Well, between teaching and coaching, my day was equally as long, but he looked at my coaching as something that I was like fluffy. I should give it up and put him first. I gave up everything else, but I, you know, I was a coach. I remember being a bit put off by some of his behaviors to me. Let me also say he's a wonderful person. If you were to watch or listen to this podcast or his family members, he has wonderful qualities. We had wonderful times in our marriage. We were together, living together, married 93 to 94 to 95. And then, so really two and a half years of a total five-year marriage. And those first couple of years were so rocky, but both of us were so dedicated as Baha'is to doing the right thing and trying to make the marriage work. We had some major stressors early on. One of them was I got approved for a pilgrimage, a trip to Israel as a religious pilgrim. So the Baha'i faith, all the holy buildings and holy lands and temples 
of the Baha'i faith are in Israel, as are all religions. <laughs> Israel is like the religious black hole to the other side is in Israel because it's the most spiritual place I've ever been. We see it as violent because everyone's fighting over it. Baha'is aren't like that. We have Mount Carmel in Haifa, and we have the prison city of Akka, and we have some beautiful Baji, the beautiful gardens of Baji, halfway between Akka and Haifa. To go to Israel as a Baha'i, you can go for a three-day tourist pass, but you have to apply and have approval for it. You can also go on a religious pilgrimage, which is nine days. You apply for them, and sometimes you wait years before your approval comes. So my mom, my dad, and me, the three of us had applied together, and our approval came. And so off we went to Haifa. Eric had worked in the Holy Land for like three years before coming back to the United States. And the last place he wanted to go was Israel. But he couldn't see me going to pilgrimage without me. We're married. And so he came. He was allowed to come and participate in the pilgrimage. That was an interesting, very eye-opening experience. I will say, any of you listening that have a chance to go to Israel, it is, I've only seen that very small piece of it. But it is a beautiful, beautiful country, a beautiful country. And I had an amazing time there. And I feel incredibly lucky to have that on my list of places that I visited. But that was a very, very intense nine-day stay. He actually had a, like a really bad panic attack and ended up in the emergency room. Thought he was having a heart attack. He wasn't. My biggest memory from that emergency room was this one doctor that saw us that was fluent, utterly fluent in nine languages. He spoke English. He spoke Hebrew. He spoke German. He spoke Polish. He spoke Farsi and Arabic, two languages that sound the same to us. It was unbelievable in that emergency room watching this doctor navigate these patients from all over the world. So when we came back, and we have only now been married you know, a handful of months, and already I'm thinking this was a giant mistake. So what we did was we started a youth group. And every Thursday night in my teeny tiny little apartment, we saw young people. We had this amazing youth group. It was amazing. I actually still know and communicate with several of the young people in that youth group. If there was something Eric and I did together well, it was the youth group. And it wasn't just for Baha'is and it wasn't to teach the Baha'i faith and it wasn't to make these kids become Baha'is. It was to use Baha'i principles around unity, around growth, of, around equality of women and men, around trying to, to how to love yourself and love God or whatever you called God. It was just a wonderful, wonderful place. And we had an apartment full of kids every Thursday night for two years. And I'll give a little shout out to Maggie, Maggie Savage. She came, Jenny Riley came. She's Jenny Plunkett now. Alicia Presti came. She was Alicia Hale back then. Those three I can remember right off the top of my head. They were incredible, incredible youth group sessions. And it was Eric and I at our best, I have to say. If people were to say, what's a good memory you have from that, it would be there. The other good memory I have is he was super helpful at Camp Greenacre. So I, I started a summer camp for kids at Greenacre. It's just a one session camp at Greenacre called Camp Greenacre. And it was just a chance for the kids to have an all day experience that wasn't children's classes. You know, we tied our t-shirts and we went to the beach and we do scavenger hunts. And so we made a board game and the whole board game was spiritual principles. And so Eric being the woodworker that he is, built a giant spinner, a giant game spinner and these giant game pieces that the kids built. So they were the size of themselves and the game was an entire field. It was unbelievable. And he was super helpful in that regard around Camp Greenacre. That's another thing that Eric and I did really, really well. When it came to the faith, we did well. Those were some of the good things. Another thing about Eric that I will say, I was having a really, really crazy meltdown and I had them sometimes and I was at a workshop at Greenacre and I was really, really losing my shit, <laughs> really, really falling apart. And it was like five in the morning. And I'm like, if you love me, you'll drive out here right now. And he did. He was in Concord and he got in his car and he drove all the way to Greenacre and we drove around and we went out for breakfast and we talked everything through. 
There were a lot of good things in that marriage, in my marriage to Eric. He had a lot of good qualities. So much of it was in his intrinsic way of life, however, was never, ever going to work. And I was wife number three. And so it really wasn't necessarily me all the time. I think that both of us were drawn to people that would perpetuate our shortcomings. I think that that's a very common trauma trait. I also think it's a trait that's common with people that rely on narcissistic beliefs and tendencies in how they treat people. I don't believe people are just born narcissists. I think that like anyone with traumatic events, they develop coping mechanisms. And I think that they're drawn to certain people. And I had all the right things on the list to be Eric's wife. I was needy. I was immature a bit and childlike. I was a lot younger than him. So many things that in hindsight were not super healthy. The other piece that part of my life that continued to go well in, during my marriage to Eric was coaching. We lived two and a half years in that little teeny apartment. We got a much bigger apartment right as our marriage was falling apart that we ended up really never living in together. I was all by myself now in this giant apartment <laughs> and he was living in Pentecoke. But we, we really did make a big concerted effort to focus on the things that we did well together. That was two and a half years. That was the fall of 93 till the spring of 96. That two and a half year period was really the chunk of time that we worked really hard in our marriage as best as we could. And then Eric was offered a job at Greenacre. So we had to go back and live there. And so he actually did that. And although we were still married, we spent the next really year of our marriage living separately. We were still married. He would come home every now and then. We were still in the little apartment and that was moving into the big apartment as well. I was living by myself. I didn't really have a marriage at that point. Maintaining my teaching job, working hard at my school, continuing to coach. I was doing all the things that I had, that I had set in motion when I came back in 1989. But in my marriage to Eric, I had completely stopped any communication with any of my friends. And I remember my good friend, Sally, Sally and I actually, after my marriage to Eric, shortly thereafter, she stopped talking to me and didn't talk to me for like 20 years, a long, long time, maybe 15 years. And I understand it now. I just, I didn't see how much he was just turning me from everyone that I knew. And I think what people like Eric and, and others in my life want is safety. What Eric loved about me was I knew everybody. And what made him the most afraid of me was that I knew everybody. And so little by little, I just suddenly realized that really all I had was Eric and then the Baha'i community. But, but I didn't have a lot of people my age in the Baha'i community. Polly was a, a constant for me here as well, too, my friend Polly. She would look sometimes at what was going on with us with this look on her face, like, I don't like what I'm seeing. And then there were other times when she would look at us and think, oh my gosh, you guys are perfect together. This was a time, I talked about Polly in my other episode where Polly and I would get together a lot. We would, we would go to the YMCA early in the morning and lift weights and work out. And we would, we would go to breakfast and we would talk. I really built my friendship with Polly up. And that was a lifesaver for me as well, because it was all going to fall apart relatively quickly. When Eric and I did decide the marriage probably wasn't going to last, in the Baha'i faith, you have what's called a year of patience. So you don't just say, I'm divorcing you and that's it. You go to a local spiritual assembly. So we went to Elliot because that's where we had gotten married. Once we had decided, you know what, this marriage isn't going to work. And he had moved out because in a year of patience, you live separately. By the time we went for a meeting with the local spiritual assembly there, we were doing fine. So we walked in holding hands. We sat down. We were so affable and friendly. And the local assembly was looking at us like, what are you doing? Like, look at you two. You're wonderful together. Like, this makes no sense. What are you doing? And we looked at each other and we said, well, it's because we're just back to being friends. <laughs> we haven't lived together for a long time. We realized that if we were to stay married, we would live separately and it would be a marriage. It just wasn't going to happen. 
when we really, really analyzed how we, how we viewed children and what we would want in, in a life with children, I remember thinking this isn't somebody I could have a child with. Those really deeply, overwhelmingly eye-opening experiences that make you realize this isn't the person I should be with. But we were married and we were married as Baha'is and we had hardly been married. And, but it was an 11 week, 11 week relationship. It was the most impulsive thing ever. Let me show you the repeating cycle of Barbara Higgins. I'm with David in Boston and then I just leave. I move home. And within two months, I don't even think about Boston anymore because I'm in my new life. I am in my relationship with David and then I'm with Chaz. And now I'm with Chaz, 100% with Chaz and I'm doing plays and I've quit drinking and I'm hiking all the time. And, and then I realized that's not going to work. And I believe there were two or three things that happened that really drove that home, but I can't really recall. So then I end that relationship, but I sort of end it. Maybe he ends it. I don't know. But then I get sick. And so I start seeing Graham and, and then I'm with Graham and then something's going on in my head now. And I marry Eric. And in each of these little chunks of life, I create a group, a social group, just completely connected to the relationship, as opposed to pulling the relationship into my existing life and entering the existing life of the other person. Really, really, you know, I, I think I have a lot more reading to do before I understand this, but I share this because in looking at my life and, and the amount of hurt I've been the victim of and the amount of hurt I've caused others, you know, to others, I just see so many repeating patterns that, that bear conversation. And I think for me, it's mostly trauma bonds and that those decisions made in trauma. And rather than really truly addressing the trauma, just moving on to the next thing, like this will work, this will work. You know, I finished up my last episode talking about all the different ways I've tried to stop drinking. Am I running into the same brick wall? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's a wooden wall or, or a metal wall. I don't know, a chain link fence. As I wind down this, this episode of those years of my life, you know, I had some wonderful relationships. Eric moved in with me in my I lived in this building I called the tower and it was, I lived in a five floor walk up and Eva, this wonderful woman from Germany owned that building. And she spoke fluent German and she only spoke German with her children. And she was a wonderful, wonderful landlord. I lived in that building when my friend Terry died. I don't know if I've talked about Terry too much, but I wasn't with Eric yet when Terry died, but I was living in that building. I met Terry again through AA and he was brothers with Tom Dowling, who was this amazing running coach who also died. John Dowling is somebody that I was good friends with and ran with and spent a good amount of time with right when I got back to Concord. That building, those years living in the tower were significant for me. They were significant in that I had a lot of meaningful experiences and reconnections with people when I lived there. And I brought Eric into that realm. And then before he and I were officially divorced, I moved out of there and moved into a big apartment on North Main Street in the historical district, a big, beautiful apartment. The building at that time was owned by the Simonella family, wonderful Concord family. And I had this beautiful upstairs apartment. I loved it. It was lovely. Much too big for me all by myself. And again, it was a giant apartment in which I stored my stuff. <laughs> when I look at my marriage to Eric, I look at it as a huge, huge, huge foreboding for what was coming in my years with Kenny and then with Roy. You know, you turn around and see the writing on the wall. I often use that movie, The Sixth Sense. You know, you watch the whole movie and you think that Bruce Willis's character is alive. It's not till the end. And, you, and then you go back and you look at all the scenes that you saw. And now that you know, you see them all completely differently. And so much of my life is like that. That's how I look at my marriage to Eric. Jump from a moderately warm frying pan into a raging fire. <laughs> you know, that was really, really just what happened. My big takeaways here, and the reason I'm sharing all this, other than just like the boring details of Barbara Higgins, you know, it was during this time that 
I first started to have really good cross country and track teams and really good runners. And, you know, I shaved the bottom part of my head. <laughs> I did it because Erica Schneck had done it. She was one of my runners. She lives in Marblehead now, I think. And then I said, if you guys win states, I'll shave my head. And we got second by one point. In my tumultuous marriage to Eric, I began becoming a really good coach and having a really good program. It was during these years that Kristen Wentworth and Rachel Wildman became incredibly important friends of mine. And both of them are girls that I was coaching. You know, at the time I was too old to be their friend, but young enough that I was still in the same sort of place they were. To this day, I maintain very strong friendships with both of them. When I, had, when I went through my job loss and some of the things that were to follow the years that they were at Concord High, they were unbelievably supportive. It remained that way. Very supportive around Molly's death. Very supportive around everything. Both ardent listeners to the podcast. And it was during those Eric years and my first years back to Concord, when I still, I suppose, could have jumped ship and gone somewhere else. I hadn't gotten married with kids. You know, I hadn't like started a family. In those eight, 1989 to 1996, my sort of real Eric years, and my divorce with Eric wasn't final until 1998, but the last half of it, two and a half years we lived together and two and a half years we were separated. It took us that long to finalize the divorce. I also built up some other really good things. I really established myself as a teacher at Walker School. Some of my earliest students also are, are people that are strong in my life right now. Brittany Pelkey, whose daughter Sawyer is, is a love, who was at track camp this week. You know, she was at Walker School student then. And I, and I met some wonderful friends with teachers there. I really did solidify myself as an adult in these first years. And I say that there's a term I hate called adulting. It just drives me nuts. But adulting is really just realizing, getting to the point where you realize I really am not young anymore in the sense of the grownups and me, the young people. You know, you're in high school and you're a kid. Then you go to college and you're still someone's child. You, you aren't old enough to buy alcohol yet. And, and, you know, you're 21 is when you're truly legally an adult. And then 21 to 25, I know for me, I was in grad school and then I was living this nomadic lifestyle running. I very much wasn't living the life of a nine to five, get up and go to work. And I remember when I got my first job in Woburn talking about, I wasn't ready for it. It was all of a sudden you really have to let go of your whole way of life because you have to be responsible now. And not that I was irresponsible, but it, it's just a growth. It's just a growth. And it was moving back to Concord and failing at second start and then getting to Walker and teaching there and developing a love for that school community and coaching. And now I'm coaching girls that run at the school that I ran at and I'm starting my life. And so when I think of starting my adult life, I really do think of those five years. And my marriage to Eric, I think was an impulsive decision. Like I'm turning 30 and I should, all my friends are getting married. And so many of my friends got married right around that time. And again, I didn't go to any of those weddings because I had just removed myself from their lives. So many of my friends have chunks of memories that I was just not a part of. I was somewhere else. Those are the goods and the bads with it. But I do see myself as somebody that really does react and respond quickly to things, sometimes with devastating consequences. Another strong memory for me, I had started seeing Judy, my therapist, Judy Rowan. I love her. And she was wonderful. And she really saw me, got me to admit that there were really two barbs, the barb that everyone saw and the actual barb. And so Polly and I came up with the names, we call our inner selves Fifi. <laughs> and when I had to draw her, I drew a picture of a little girl sitting on the floor with her, with her knees bent up, hiding her head on her knees in her hands. And Polly found these little statues. I have to find my Fifi statue. It's somewhere. I know it is in this huge house of mine. And we each had a Fifi statue and, or maybe we, we shared it back and forth and then we each had our own. 
But I remember one time, the night before I married Eric, she came up to Greenacre because she was at, in that wedding as well. And she put Fifi on the shelf and she's like, here. And it was, you know, this incredibly tender because I think she saw that Fifi Barb, tender Barb, truly tender Barb was trying as hard as she could to, to be strong and to manifest herself more outwardly. I think those two sides of me, you know, I had a period of time with Kenny and I'll get to that part at some point in the next couple of episodes as well. But where I was really balanced and Fifi was, was loud and boisterous. She wasn't hidden away at all. One other quick thing to share with Eric that I noticed was a red flag is early on, I had this big, huge basket of love letters. We all have love letters from everybody. I had, and they tell a story and I had them all. He was like, well, I shouldn't have to open the closet and know that they're there. And so I threw them away. Like I thought, well, this is my person. I'll throw them away. And I remember going to his house in Pennsylvania and going down into the cellar to look for something. And I opened a file cabinet drawer and it was a file folder drawer, a file drawer full of his love letters. And I was like, you made me throw mine away. And his answer was, well, mine are here in Pennsylvania. You don't have to look at them every day. And it was heart-wrenching because I just felt like that was so inequitable. <laughs> another red flag and another little moniker of things to come later on in my life. So, you know, it's the end of June. Right around the time I met Eric, it's kind of funny. And it's also right around the, the time of year that our marriage, we really separated. So all these things sort of come to mind. You know, I don't really have any key takeaways here other than living a life in fear. If you're somebody that, if any of what I'm saying sounds familiar to you, I always worry that I'm going to be boring. <laughs> Maybe I am. I don't know. That time in my life, living a sober lifestyle and immersing myself in my religion, I really was trying really hard to create a good version of myself. You know, not just understanding that I'm fine just the way I am. I'm a child of God and God loves me. You know, I have this picture of me when I'm little, I have it up there and I'm in a little sailor dress and nothing bad had happened to me yet. And I look at that picture and I just think, oh my God, she has no idea what's coming. And I have to remind myself that I have to keep loving her because little Barb is the same as this Barb. I'm all the way, all the same way through. Episode 44 winds down. I will be next time when we get into episode 45, I might have to make a couple of little detours. I'll see if I just follow chronologically, I get into, you know, meeting Kenny, but there's a lot that was going on in my life around meeting Kenny. And so... I may have to do a couple of my little segue episodes where I get into other things before I continue along. So we'll see. So it's my favorite weather right now. It's beautiful and hot and sunny. There were many, many pride parades and celebrations all across the country today, this weekend, the 25th and the 26th. Please, please, please love everybody. It's not our job as humans to decide who's lovable and who isn't. And for the people that you just can't make yourself love, just be kind to them or pray for them, or meditate for them. And Roe v. Wade was overturned, and, and I will not make my podcast a political soapbox. You know, regardless of your stance on abortion, now would be a good time to look at what unites us and what our commonalities are, as opposed to why we're different and why we should fight one another. Give someone a hug. Say hello to somebody. Give someone a compliment. Donate to a cause that supports something that's good. I tell you what, we have half of our country now where abortion is going to be banned. Find causes in those states that support teenage pregnancies that support financial assistance for families and children, find ways to help women in those states that might need help. Reach out and be part of a positive change in those states. I know that I'm going to do that very thing right now. I just pay attention to the other women and girls in the world that I know and love and those that I don't. And how can I be helpful? So how can you be helpful? My big goodbye today will be help yourself first and then help someone else. And as always, have a good day, everybody. 
Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.